Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey listeners, just a heads up. This episode contains sensitive language. I'm a woman with two children. And Mm -hmm. my family has been under threat multiple times in the past four years. And I often think I'm going to slow my roll on what I do for Black liberation because we ain't safe. I'm Deborah Jian Lee, and this is Kaleidoscope. We just heard from Michelle Higgins. She leads outreach and worship at South City Church in St. Louis. She's also an activist who does a ton of mobilizing. For example, Michelle meets monthly with evangelicals to address how they might dismantle their complicity in white supremacy, homophobia, and Islamophobia. She also works with local groups fighting criminalized poverty. Men and women in our local jail are sitting in lockup because they can't afford bail or they cannot afford to clear a warrant that came from them having a pouch of marijuana, or not paying parking tickets. In this episode, I talked to Michelle about the challenges of her work, about the cost of putting herself out there for racial justice, and why she keeps going. At the start of our conversation, we're talking about self-examination, and I asked Michelle about the toughest thing she's trying to dismantle in her own life. Oh, uh, there's two. There's always more than one thing <laughs> that is really hard. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm sure there's a list. <laughs> I know. I'm in my head. I'm like, okay, how do I just pick two? Because I just gave myself an extra one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two of the hardest things to dismantle personally and then as a member of a Black family especially um, have been chasing my own security, my physical and personal safety. I'm a woman with two children. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. my family has been under threat multiple times in the past four years. And I often mm-hmm. think I'm going to slow my roll on what I do for black liberation because we ain't safe. And mm. that is almost exactly opposite of what I preach everywhere I go. <laughs> I'm like, put your <laughs> life on the line for black liberation. <laughs> Let goods and kindreds mm-hmm. go. You know, when deep down I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can march today because my family's under threat. So that's that's definitely one of the hard mm. things that sticks out. That's real though. It's I mean, so, girl, yeah. It's so real. I mean, my address was made public on Twitter for like two or three days 
And mm. it really pained my family. It scared us. And the temptation was was real. It was more of like, this is a godly choice. We're going to stop being public and Michelle's going to stop speaking publicly. And that'll be a godly choice. But that's not true. Fear hmm. for your own loss of life is actually not the central reason to do anything. And I can't preach that and then not live it. So that's been really hard to dismantle. And it's an ongoing process. The other thing has a lot to do with safety, and that is financial security. Ooh, Mm -hmm. Jesus, especially Mm -hmm. at the cost. Um, And we talked about this when we were together, but what is the value of establishing financial security when the currency you exchange for it (laughs) is agreement to complicity, right? So we really come Mm. hard on the current presidential regime in the United States right now, and we say, hey, All these people, especially 80% of evangelicals, are exchanging some kind of, I don't know, bribe or social or mental security. I'm anti-abortion, so I did the right thing. But the exchange is the protection of women's bodies. The exchange is complicity and hatred and Islamophobia and homophobia and the despising of people who are poor simply because they are not rich. I have a lot to dismantle in myself about saying, all right. I'm going to sit idly by and support factions of different people who claim to be ministers of the gospel. I'm going to support different sects Mm. and factions of so-called churches who say only men should have power in exchange for a paycheck. I don't know how much longer I can be complicit for the sake of being financially secure. Yeah. Wow. We just got right into it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, now every time I read about you or hear someone talking about you or I'm talking to you directly I am just floored by the degree to which you are involved on the ground in your (laughs) local community mobilizing and partnering with people from all different communities Um, before we get into what you're doing now I want to back up and talk about like the big aha moments that really pushed you towards becoming a social justice activist? When my dad was an officer in uh, Friedberg, Germany, and his barber was a black gay man who loved to do his hair and loved to braid me and my sister's hair. We had such an incredible time um, with with this soldier. He found out that he was HIV positive in 1988. And so I was I was seven at the time. And in 1988, I, I don't know if, you know, you look so young, but we all do. But I don't know if we remember <laughs> what people thought about HIV and AIDS in the 80s. And mm-hmm. this young man was um, brutally assaulted in the barracks that my dad oversaw. Mm-hmm. And so he came to live with us. And my parents, uh, for better or worse, didn't hold back. But I had the aha moment of my mom and dad explaining to me why our dear friend, who was family to us, obviously, I didn't even blink when I walked in and my dad had given him my room. (laughs) I was like, cool, sleepover. (laughs) But to have someone be so close to you as family and to have them despised in their body because of something Mm. that was destroying their body was how my parents phrased this person is precious to God and even more so 
because he was hated by man. And my dad actually manipulated a lot of his professional privilege to make sure that this young man got home, was safe, and was cared for, even continuing to provide for him financially. And in those moments, you know, like I said, sometimes in the past, I look back and I don't think the phrase manipulating professional privilege would have come out of my seven-year-old mouth. (laughs) Um, But now, further down in the future, in the year 2014, uh, just a few months after Michael Brown was murdered, um, 10 miles north of where I work, a young man named Von Derrick Myers was murdered by an off-duty police officer who was two miles away from where he was supposed to be at the time, just tracking young black men walking around the neighborhood, wanting to see if anyone might get into trouble so that he could be hmm. there to abuse his own authority by flashing his badge while off-duty. And that problem itself, by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit immediately identified the solution, that blackness must be seen as beautiful, that blackness must be seen as integral. And that was an aha moment for me as a person who was raised on the words of the great black liberators, raised on the poetry of Langston Hughes, on the music of Stevie Wonder, and so many people who had fought with their art, with their craft, with their time, talents, and gifts to see blackness as beautiful. Right. And so I want to talk about evangelicals Mm -hmm. during the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, during just this larger, I don't know, movement of social engagement. Mm. Um, But before we get there, I want to give our listeners some context about you. So I have two questions. The first is, (laughs) do you still identify as evangelical? And what does evangelical mean to you? Ooh, what does evangelical mean? The classic. And do you still identify? Yeah. You know, I'm, I am, I'm hanging on. I'm hanging on. I got to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) The skin on my teeth is peeling off. (laughs) (laughs) So many people, when they answer that question, their voice goes up like three octaves, just like yours did. Well... (laughs) Continue. Yes, I I am hanging on to evangelical in part because it is the quickest way to let people know that I believe in the historic resurrection of Jesus. One of the reasons that I'm barely hanging on to evangelical is because it is directly associated with not only the presumption that people must be judgmental when they don't believe the same, but People are worthless who do not believe the same. And that is what honestly pisses me off about those who have destroyed this moniker. Wow. Well, I know that within the evangelical movement, there is a long history of people who are involved in social Mm -hmm. justice activism. How did you get involved in the Black Lives Matter movement? The reason that I got involved with the movement for Black Lives is because... (laughs) I I walked into a general assembly for one of their groups in St. Louis. I walked into what's called a mass meeting, and it was inside of a church. This is maybe eight or nine days after Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson. They had a convening, called it a mass meeting, and I walked into this church, and they were learning chants 
no justice, no peace. I believe that we will win. We gonna be all right. They were sharing chants together. They were saying, it is our duty to fight for freedom. It is our duty to win. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but be discomforted by how much unity and divine truth I had walked into and how hungry my soul was for something I had not experienced in a worship space in a very long time. And so the reason that I got involved in the movement for Black Lives is very simply because the church in the United States has not been actively dismantling white supremacy in our sacred spaces. In the midst of all of this, mm. you reached out to evangelical partners, many mm -hmm. of whom were white evangelical partners. Mm -hmm. What were you hoping for when you reached out to them, yeah. and what kind of reaction did you get? I was hoping, this is so crazy, it's, it's clear in my mind, the people that I was talking to, the people that I knew had absorbed Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, uh, which includes in it the poignant chapter, the letter from the Birmingham jail. So I reached out to people in hopes that they would respond in the ways of those who read and were changed by the letter from the Birmingham jail. And the result was that, like Fannie Lou Hamer said, only the handful <laughs> agreed to help shift the structures of how we quote unquote do church. And the vast majority made the choice to remain moderate, to remain silent, which in turn became a long walk of ambivalence that truly led to apathy on the part of a lot of our would-be partner churches who I believe were either afraid to raise their voices about injustice or were worried that when you speak up and say, a young boy who makes mistakes should not have been murdered, then people around you who believe that black boys who make mistakes deserve to die, they'll stop supporting your org. They will stop sending you their offering check. They'll stop showing up to your worship events. And then you will look the fool. Um, you talked about wanting your white evangelical partners to mm. change the structures. Mm. What does that mean specifically? Like, what does that actually look like? It looks like a lot of things. Um, and so when I'm asking people to shift structures in their church that would cost them, that would make them fear to say Black Lives Matter, I'm asking them to self-interrogate and to actively dismantle anything that shows them that Black lives do not matter. And the only way for them to do that without self-protecting or trying to run away is for them to admit that a lot of church structures not only do not honor black life, they actually don't find that it's integral to the body of Christ. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, more from my conversation with Michelle Higgins. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Kaleidoscope. Before we jump back into the audio, I'm going to set the scene. You're at a massive evangelical missions conference called Urbana. It's organized by a pretty conservative student ministry, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's a big conference, 16,000 people, stadium seats, and it only happens once every three years. Let's call it the Olympics for InterVarsity, in a sense that it draws a global audience and gets a ton of hype. Some quick background. InterVarsity does have some diversity, but culturally and theologically, it can skew fairly white. But the organization resembles the evangelical world and our country as a whole. The white majority is shrinking, and the voices of people of color are rising. Okay, let's go back to the conference. It's December 2015, and the stakes are high because just a year before, Michael Brown, an unarmed black teenager, was shot and killed by a white police officer. And this matters to the story because it happened fairly close to the conference site. People of color let Urbana leaders know that this has to be addressed. So they invite Michelle. Hold on Just a little while longer Hold Ugh, I just don't want it to end. (laughs) Michelle, Michelle, that was so amazing. All right, so that was Michelle opening her keynote address at the Urbana Conference. Now we're going to jump back into the interview where I asked Michelle to explain the significance of that song and why she decided to sing it. Here's Michelle. That song has meant so much to another particular piece of my mission, what I feel the Lord has always called me to, and that is to see the sanctuary and the streets harmonize in singing. Hold on never says the name of Jesus. It never says Only people who believe that Jesus died for their sins and his blood washed them and he rose again to make sure that they had a home in heaven and he'll return someday and only take back the people that believe it. It never gives (laughs) (laughs) that point by point 
message of what you have to believe in order to be saved. And what you can probably tell just from the meter and the tone of the song, it's a hopeful piece that came out of some of the darkest time in history. Hmm. It's a song sung by slaves originally. Hmm. Hold on, work on, cry on, sing on, pray on. And the refrain every time is everything will be all right. It is the cry, not just of oppressed people around the world, but specifically of black people in the United States. It is a specific contextualized cry, not just for help, but to the one to where we know our help comes from. I wasn't at this Urbana, but I do remember listening to your talk from home. Mm. I heard you sing the song. I heard you give a sermon that absolutely blew me away for many <laughs> reasons. But one reason was that inner varsity, mm-hmm. which is conservative on a host of social issues, yeah, gave you a platform to speak so frankly about mm. evangelical indifference towards racial justice, mm-hmm. about Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. about white supremacy that shapes so many churches. That was something that, frankly, surprised me. Before you delivered your talk, what kind of reaction were you expecting? Oh, here's what I can tell you. Here's what I can riff on a little bit, is how I hoped my Black brothers and sisters primarily and Mm -hmm. my family who identified as people of color would Mm -hmm. react. I can tell you that I stood on that Mm -hmm. stage and every word that I spoke, I prayed, God, if this is the scalpel to do surgery on some groups of people, let it Mm -hmm. be. But let all of it, all of it, be a specific edification to the black people who feel that not only do their lives not matter in the United States, but they are worthless or only worth as much as a photo op in the evangelical church and especially in missions organizations that all wish that niggas would get in line. That's what I stood on that stage and I hoped. I prayed, let all of my black brothers and sisters hear that they are formed, created, and made wondrously. I wanted all of them to hear that God made you and so you are precious. Oh, more than that, God made you black. He made you black. So you will live black and do so boldly in ambivalence to white discomfort, fragility, and even their so-called righteous demands. Well, full disclosure, I used to be a part of InterVarsity, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm not anymore. I, I left after college, and I actually have had this. I write about this, um, but I've had this, you know, this separation from the evangelical world mm. and from just the Christian label and you know, a lot of people ask me, why do you keep covering evangelicals? Why do you keep returning to this world? When I hear messages like your message, I remember 
this community of believers, they could live into the very text and scripture that paints a mind-blowing picture of what human coexistence and Mm -hmm. human connection and spiritual thriving could look like. Mm. Obviously, the audience is incredibly diverse Mm -hmm. and not everyone had the same reaction (laughs) that I had or perhaps (laughs) other people. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about about the there was there was some backlash and there was some people who were really angry can we just talk about that a little bit and what did you see from your vantage point my focus was so far from the average white person my focus was intentionally not on white people understanding me that so many people white and non-white hated that they hated how obvious that was or they didn't get it they didn't understand why a person would get up and talk in a way that was intentionally not directed to white appeasement and so I believe that's the reason for a lot of the backlash the sad ironic funny frustrating and terrifying thing is that The death threats that I have received from that time through now have all been from groups who are pro-life. So in short, my death threats are from pro-life people. And I have never experienced a time in which hatred and vitriol come at me, at my person or my family. I've never experienced a time when those things come from people who do not claim to follow Jesus. I've been called child of Satan, demon priestess, oh, pagan priestess, voodoo priestess. So the misogyny and the, the misogynoir is really clear there too. <laughs> um, I ended up getting depressed. And even in that depression, I knew that it was an answer to my question, Lord, Will this matter? <laughs> Does two black lives really matter? And the answer from the Lord was to me and then to a few others. <laughs> so <laughs> the backlash that I that I received, I believe, was a challenge to the people who were sympathetic or silent. It was a question to them. Now, I want to talk about the work that you're doing now. Obviously, what happened at Urbana did receive a lot of backlash. And the work you continue to do <laughs> receives backlash, but it hasn't deterred you. I would love for you to talk about the work you're doing now and really help paint a picture for us. Show us what you are doing day to day. Thank you so much for asking that. It's my favorite question to answer. So, <laughs> so as an overflow of my work in worship and outreach, especially at a church that has the kindness and flexibility to let me labor in the sanctuary and on the streets. I do a lot of work in seeing the dismantling of cash bail. And uh, all of this is in the pursuit of a now hopeful, but hopefully soon realized abolishment of pretrial detainment. 
there are a number of people in our local jail who are not only pre-trial, but they haven't been arrested under criminal circumstances. It's laughable and disturbing. It's like trauma laughter. That's another thing that a lot of black women do. But it's laughable (laughs) um, to the point that it's disturbing that men and women in our local jail are by and large sitting in lockup because they can't afford bail or they cannot afford to clear a warrant that came from them having a pouch of marijuana or synthetic marijuana or not paying parking tickets. And Mm. the depths of criminalized poverty are so real. They are deeply connected to displacement and gentrification in St. Louis. And they're deeply connected to anti-blackness in St. Louis. And so my work every day is checking in with different funds, different uh, local organizations. I partner with a law firm. And we see about getting these people equal justice under the law. We check in with potential everyday citizens who might have the $50 that I need to bail out a homeless man who's been in jail for over a year. We check in with local citizens about, well, maybe you have a spare $100 because All of my clients don't. And what I love most about this job is that it's beginning to show people connections and what we call on-ramps to a movement that is every day seeking liberation for the poor, the oppressed, and people of color. And these on-ramps can come with people doing everyday things. So I wanted to ask you, you know, in the midst of all the work that you're doing, And in the midst of just this chaotic world, when you come home at the end of the day, how do you talk to your kids about the world that they're inheriting? I'm unable to mince words about the world and the United States just not being the way it should be. Sin has covered our world. I tell them that. And I also speak plainly about the evils of an empire that actually started by stealing land. So it's been a privilege for us to be able to talk plainly with our kids. My husband is supportive of telling our kids the whole truth about the world they will inherit. And we also tell them what it means to be black in America. And that is to know for sure that God values you. And to also know that many people around you may not. And so I tell my children that the future is bright because Jesus is coming in the future. The future is bright because we have a community that trusts that Black Lives Matter, that believes that protest is our responsibility. And I speak very plainly with them about how hard it's going to be to continue to fight for what's right, but how much joy comes in doing what we know we're supposed to do. And my son has had a panic attack. Um, My daughter got in trouble at Children's Church a couple weeks ago um, for saying something. (laughs) And I... And I think that they're now actually learning and connecting the hard things that I've been telling them. They're both young, six and five. 
And I think they're actually connecting. They're learning to see, wow, what mom talks about at home is actually what a lot of people live. But the beautiful thing that I see is that they are befriending white children and not sacrificing what they believe. And they're befriending and loving their fellow children of color. And they share together Mm. what they believe. So I see a lot of beautiful things for my kids' future, even if they don't quite know exactly what's happening all the time. Thanks so much for listening to Kaleidoscope. Join us again next week for our second installment of Hashtag Help, Kaleidoscope's advice column. Michelle will be back to answer a tricky question from a listener who's struggling with something really big at her church. Michelle will drop some knowledge, wisdom, and concrete advice. I can't wait to share it with you. That's it for this episode. Kaleidoscope is produced by Annie Newen with amazing support by co-founder Aaron James Brown. Special thanks to Dennis Funk. I'm your host, Deborah Jian Lee. You can find out more about the show at kscopepod.com. Our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all at kscopepod. Thanks to the BTS Center for funding season one. If you're into the show and you want to hear more in the future, please consider supporting us. Our Patreon account is kscopepod. Or use the Radio Public app where we get some coins for each listen. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps too. All right. See you next episode. In the meantime, let the world see you. When they do, they'll never be the same. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you're comfortable, would you just be open to singing a verse from that song so we can just take our listeners to this moment? Wow. Okay. Yeah, let me sip some water. Hold on one second. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Hold on just a little while longer. Hold on just a little while longer. Hold on just a little while longer. Everything will be alright. Everything will be right. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.